Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jean Renoir, and I'm the author of the picture The Grand Illusion, and I'm very happy to present it to you. Well, if today I'm able to do it, it's just because I'm lucky. The negative of this picture had been lost, and the different prints had been butchered by the different censors of different countries all around the world. I was ready to give up when, unexpectedly, I received a letter from a very charming lady. This very charming lady was a captain in the American Army, exactly a captain in the American Film Service, and she had found a negative of the Grand Illusion in a blockhouse in Munich. This negative had been taken to Germany by the Nazis during the occupation of Paris. And I insist on one fact. This negative was uncut, brand new, and was a negative of the original version of the picture. Perhaps you will be surprised by certain situations, certain scenes in the picture, showing French prisoners, also English prisoners, or Belgian or Russian, getting along pretty well with the Germans. We must not forget that the story takes place in 1914. And in 1914, there was no Hitler. In 1914, the Nazis hadn't spoiled yet the spirit of the world. May I say that to a certain extent, the war of 1914 was almost a war of gentlemen. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Awards Don't Matter, the podcast where we take a look at the best picture winners and some of the losers and decide whether they still matter or not. In this particular episode, we're taking a look at a loser. Uh... Not me. My name's Andrew Pierce. I should have uh, framed that sentence a bit better. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect framing. We are listening to a loser. Andrew from the current.com.au. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I'm Dave. We are here to talk about La Grande Illusion, uh, the famous French film from 1937. Uh, just another example of the Academy screwing things up. Uh, because the movie was not in English, because we just can't have that. We're we're dealing kind of with that this year, maybe, with the Oscars or awards in general, where they put a great movie, Minari, as a foreign film, uh, despite the fact that it was made in America with uh, with American actors, with American money. Uh, but, but some of the movie is in Korean, so fuck it. It's it's foreign now, because that's, that's how we look <laughs> at things. So, again, not much has changed in 90 years. This is still working. <laughs> we so, would we would rather award a movie that's silent than a movie that is not in English. That's, oh gosh, the artist, fine. <laughs> yep, the grand illusion, nope, not nope. interested. So sorry. <laughs> so yeah, this is uh, this is the first part of the reason why we're we're covering this particular film is it's because it's the first uh, best picture nominee that is not in the English language. And that doesn't happen again until, uh, I believe it's Z, uh, way back in the 70s. Um, mm. So they, they go quite a long period of time without uh, nominating another uh, Best Picture winner uh, in that's not in English. And frustratingly, like, I, I want to... St- this is your first time watching this particular film, isn't it, Dave? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep, okay. sure is. So I want to propose a question, which is, I guess... What kind of future do you think that we would have had if La Grande Illusion was the winner in the 1930s? You know, I I, I wonder what kind of films we would have had after this. Yeah. Um, Okay. So uh, before I answer that question, I have a slight bone to pick with you. For someone (laughs) who supposedly doesn't like war movies, you're like, just, yeah, let's throw another war movie in the mix that we don't even have to cover. That didn't win. And Andrew's like, no, warmonger Andrew. It's like, no, more war pictures, please. Which shocks me because I know for a fact that that is not something you're interested in. It is not. Uh, I don't like war films. Oh, you don't. And yet, one of your favorite movies that we watched on here is a war picture. All quiet on the Western Front. And now you made us watch yet another one. Um, But yeah, I mean, that. That may sound like to the, you know, to folks listening, saying like, what would the future look like if this had won may seem maybe like a dramatic or silly question. But I don't think it is Um, because I think this is there are linchpin moments in everything. Right. And in terms of awards and the way they're spoken about in film and the way it's spoken about, this could have been a great moment. 
you could have had one a movie not in english um uh, be celebrated um a movie from a director and from a place that had made so many great films that would have opened up the opportunity for regular viewers to go who's jean renoir like who i'm a, I, maybe i should watch more by this person because and this still happens now i can't tell you how many people i've met who are like normal people not like uh, not like you and me not people who will watch 10 movies a week but like people are like oh okay you say it's really good i'll check that out um and any movie that wins best picture goes on that list right oh well it's the best one i better watch it so there would have been and even now there would have been thousands more people that would have watched this movie. Cause how many people do you know on letterboxd another curse site uh, that will just like go through and watch all the best picture winners. Right. So this oh, is another so area. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So luckily, you know, there are, you know, there are boutique labels like criterion that will publish things like this. So you can like in honestly, if you have the money to do it, especially during those like half off sales, I would highly recommend just blind buying some stuff. Like, you're going to get some really amazing stuff. Like, pretty much everything I have on Criterion, I think there's maybe five movies in my collection that I had watched before I bought them. Like, I was like, let's just take a risk. Why not? Let's have a good time with it. And, like, pretty much all of them have been great, right? And this was actually, I think, one of the first movies on uh, Criterion DVD, but then they lost the rights, so it has the date on the It's, it's literally spawn number one. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so that's that's how highly thought of it is. I think spy number one on the Blu-rays is Seven Samurai. So it's at that level. It's at Kurosawa's supposedly greatest film, although that's not my favorite Kurosawa. But, uh, you know, very, very highly thought of film. So I think the world would be a better place. And let me get this out of the way, Andrew. This movie, and I do not use this word lightly. People who have listened to me on a podcast directed by know I am a stickler for the word masterpiece. Because that is an overused word that, like, anytime a movie's pretty good, we're like, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, Borat, a masterpiece of comedy. Like, okay, let's just settle down. The Grand Illusion is a goddamn masterpiece. It's it's a perfect movie. It really is. Like, like the fact that this did not win the Oscar is borderline criminal. And it just goes to show you that the Oscars have been getting it wrong for 90 years. Like, this... This blue and I mentioned on our last episode that was a great field of movies. None of them are anywhere near the Grand Illusion. Oh yeah, like it is just you can tell it's lovingly made. It's painstakingly crafted. Every character matters. Even characters who are only there for one or two scenes, they're not throwaway moments. Every single minute, every single frame matter like we always ask at the end of these episodes like did this movie matter and the last couple like yeah not really the grand illusion matters and i i think especially it's funny you you actually sent me a couple reviews and a couple pieces of writing about it one of them i had already looked because i always look for roger ebert uh because even when i disagree with him like i just think he is one of the greatest film writers to ever live like and it's not just because like oh he likes the movies i like and doesn't like the ones i don't like when i've read takedown views that he's written of movies I love and I'm still entertained, right? So that's the mark of a great film writer. So I always look for him. But as I was watching this movie, uh, this made me feel good because apparently I had the same thought process <laughs> as, as the Rebirth. Because the two movies I thought of were The Great Escape and Goodfellas. Um, and, you know, The Great Escape, pretty obvious reasons. There's a whole plot line where they're trying to escape, dig their way out. But I love the fact that the movie totally switches it up on you they they build up this escape attempt and they're like oh yeah actually we're moving sorry that was all for nothing so don't worry about it but the scene where they're kind of first introduced into this prison camp because basically they're you know their plane gets shot down and they're escorted to the prison camp because they're officers so they're not gonna treat them poorly because this movie is a lot about class and how that interacts with war um and they get there and the other the other french folks there are living a pretty good life like they're getting fresh food, they're cooking, and it is very not reminiscent because this came first, but it reminded me of that scene in Goodfellas where all the gangsters are in prison and they're like, you know, slicing their garlic with their razor blades and living a pretty good life. In prison, dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor 
and used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. And, and of course, I go and read uh, Roger Ebert's column, and those are the two movies that he mentioned. I was like, hey, <laughs> same boat. Because, like, as I was watching this movie, I had to press pause because I think, like, the doorbell rang. I had to do something. So I pressed pause and went and did that thing. And then I went on Twitter, and the first thing I wrote about it was like, man, Scorsese must have fucking loved this movie. Like, you can tell. (laughs) And then I finish it and then read that, like, yep, there it is. But, yeah, I mean, this is also, like, shockingly progressive and kind of gay. Uh, Like, I was like, this is 1937. Like, that scene where you have that, you know, that one character dress in drag and the world stops. Oh, yeah. Like, what a fantastic moment. Like, this is, like, I mean, not to, like, overdo it, and I always do with movies like this, because it is a masterpiece, but I... Sometimes you're watching movies like this and you're like, oh, yeah, this this is why I'm obsessed with movies like this is one of those movies that hammers the point home, because when you watch a lot of movies, you're going to watch a lot of shit and you're going to watch watch a lot of like middle of the road things because most things are. But every once in a while, man, like it's one of those like five stars. is enough. This is like a six star movie out of five. Like it's so, so good. And I would challenge any lover of film to watch this and not be moved by it. Oh, yeah. One of the things which I absolutely love about this film is the way that it doesn't hold your hand. The way it just sits there and it just lets events happen. And it's not. it may not be until a minute into the following scene that you understand what, has, what that edit has just done. And as you're saying, like, there is that moment where... They think that something's happening, but they're just getting moved camps. And we never see them get moved camps. And they're just, the next cut, they're in a new place. And we're like, oh, wow. Okay. So all of that was for nothing. And what I love about this film, like, I I want to I wanna champion, obviously, that they don't need championing it. But um, I want to celebrate the Criterion Collection for a moment. Just because, obviously, there's a, over a thousand films there. Um, and they are all of, of varying quality and stuff like that. And uh, I am grateful that a film like this is number one because I only co- like I only watched this film way back when when I was buying up the first hundred entries in the Criterion Collection. I, I've got all the first hundred films on on disc, and it was just more of a completionist thing that I was like, I need to have the first one hundred films. And so I purchased this, and then. One day I was like, well, now you purchased them, I've got to watch them. And I sat down and watched Grand Illusion. I was like, holy shit, if this wasn't where it is and stuff like that, I, I don't know if I would have ever gotten to this in until... I, I don't even know if I would have, uh, you know, doing this particular podcast, I don't know if I would have even said, let's do Grand Illusion. I mean, you kind of have to because it's the first film not in English language to be nominated, but... I'm grateful for a, a service like Criterion for being able to highlight these great films because, you know, this is so culturally important and so, you know, really just what a, a masterful film. I just want to also read a section from that Roger Ebert review because he talks about the the manner that this particular film was almost completely lost. And he talks about how it was saved by kind of like the unlikeliest person in a way. Um, Because this is really, it's an anti-war film where war, we don't see the war. It's all from the prisoner's perspective. There are no, you know, besides one moment, there are no shots fired. There are no, you know, acts of violence, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It is a very uh, passive kind of war film. And, Roger Ebert writes, So pointed was Renoir's message that when Germans occupied France, Grand Illusion was one of the first things they seized. It was cinematic public enemy number one. Propaganda Minister Joseph Goebbels announced ordering the original negative to be seized. Its history since then would make a movie like The Red Violin as the print moved across borders in shadowy ways. For many years, it was assumed that Negative was destroyed in the 1942 Allied air raid, but as Stuart Clowens reported in The Nation, it had already been singled out by a German film archivist named Frank Hensel, then a Nazi officer in Paris, who had it shipped to Berlin. And when Renoir supervised the assembly of restored prints in the 1960s, nothing was known of this Negative. And Eventually, you know, the the final film that we are able to see now is from that particular negative. But it's just insane that a an archivist, a Nazi archivist was like, 
yeah, okay, this is, you know, uh, cinematic public enemy number one, which is what a label to be applied to a film. Um, and he says, you know, we've got to hold on to this film. We, we don't like what it says. We don't like what it means, but we've got to hold on to it. And uh-huh. I'm really glad that that's the case because... yeah. Yeah, like we've covered anti-war films before. All Quiet on the Western Front is a devastating anti-war film. But Grand Illusion is even more of a devastating anti-war film. Which leads me to the next question that I have for you, Dave, because I think that one of the the best kind of um, starting points for discussing this film a little bit more is, to you, what does the title Grand Illusion mean? Mm. I mean, to me... um... This ties in, I think, to what this film is really about. Uh, it is an anti-war film, but uh, that's not that's not the first thing that comes to mind when I watch it. To me, this movie is a vicious takedown of class systems. Um, you know, you have you know your essentially your two lead characters, uh, Will Do and Ralph Rinstein, uh, one French and one German, both high class, both have similar experiences they've done some of the same things they even speak in the same way um they speak like you know doing some little research about this like they speak a a like higher level of french and german like a very like stuffy style right um but really this movie is about how that is all disintegrating before their eyes how none of that matters none of that is going to continue and to me like that's that's the illusion uh, that that we're dealing with the idea that any of this matters, that the idea that a war matters, the idea that who you were before matters. There's even a sequence where there's a there's another soldier kind of talking about actually like I'm richer than either of you. You guys have nothing. You have a name, but the, you have this illusion of wealth and power. And yeah, that got you in a position to be an officer. But when we go home, you've got nothing. That's all falling apart. That's all going to go away. And when push comes to shove, that stuff all does go away. And I find it really interesting because he he paints those two characters as kind of tragic figures, but also in some ways as figures of mockery, like who think very highly of themselves. And it's a very intricate balance that Renoir does here. Um, And it takes a wildly talented director to manage this because at no point – even though they're figures of mockery at some moments, there's no point where you're like actively pointing and laughing at them. Like you are sad for them, but you are also like, yeah, but you've had a lot of advantages and look where you still are. And this illusion of power, this illusion of wealth, this illusion of your place in the world is just that. It's just an illusion. You're not any braver. You're not any stronger. Hell, you're not even any richer. The one thing that you should be with all the advantages you've had. And especially after this, this is all going to go away. And I think there's a very specific reason why one of them has to shoot the other. You know, and I love that it builds up that tension in that moment where you feel like maybe he's going to let him go. Uh, No, but all these conversations those are kind of an illusion too. all these nice conversations they've had. Uh, there was even, I guess, an unshot ending where they were going to agree to meet for dinner after this was all over. And then the camera would go to that dinner and there would just be two empty chairs. Like this is the tragic ending for these, but I love this ending so much more. Like, I think it's pointed. It's, it's kind of mean in a way, like it's kind of vicious, but not in a way where you're going to be like, Ugh, I can't believe I watched this. It's like, yeah, that is kind of how this all ends up. You can sit, you can have all the niceties you want. You're still on opposite sides in a war. You can treat that guy nice. He's still your prisoner, and you're still you're still his warden. Like, call it what it is. I think it's also interesting as well. The um, you know this this film does touch on moments of anti-Semitism as well, and there is a powerful moment which is almost blink and you miss it um, because it is so. Uh, the main characters are so dismissive of this one character, but there is an African French soldier who is talking about art and he's trying to talk about, you know, what the art that means to him and all this kind of stuff. And it's very brief, but they disregard him so completely in a manner that is like, that, that just accentuates what you're talking about there with the class system where they're basically like, 
we don't like you, you know, we have to accept that you're here. And it just, it just highlights that while there is this civility between soldiers, while there is a civility there between uh, supposed enemies uh, where they can sit there and talk about geraniums and things like that, there is still racism. There is still anti-Semitism. There is still a, a manufactured divide that doesn't need to be there, but it is there because hate thrives in places that you don't expect it to. And, and, and it's so, it's so pointed in that manner. And it's so upsetting to see, um, communal people who, you know, logically we should say, well, you're sitting there getting along and you're going, going perfectly fine. So why can't you get over your differences? But on the same hand, you know, they all had their life experiences. They all come from a perspective that is like, you know, I have to fight you. I have to hate you because of who you stand for, because of what you stand for, or because of how you look, or because of your religion. And what a film like this does for me is it just highlights how pathetic humanity is, how pathetic we are as people. You know, it's and to me, that's what the grand illusion stands for: is the 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 grand illusion of humanity. Because when we say the word humanity, we think empathy we think compassion we think care we think support for our fellow human beings but then we also have so much hate and violence and and you know disregard for one another that humanity is just a fiction it doesn't exist it's not real um and and i find that's probably the thing that i find most devastating about this and and that's what the ending to me stands for so powerfully is that you know this manufactured border that they cannot even see. They can't see the border to Switzerland. And yet the German soldiers like, no, don't, don't shoot them, they're in Switzerland. It's like... Okay, point to me where the line is. Like, how did you know that where you're standing and where they're standing is the border between two countries? It doesn't exist. And yet, they manufacture it. We manufacture all these things ourselves. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, that's that's to me what the Grand Illusion is. Um, Yeah, I like that. I'm also glad you brought up the racism and anti-Semitism because this is... The Grand Illusion, in many ways, is a just a masterclass in filmmaking and a lesson that a lot of filmmakers could take. Uh, we talked about on a previous episode, the life of Emil Zola, not not dealing with the anti-Semitism uh, that was going on in that particular case and just brushing over it. And this movie is proof that a great director and a great writer can touch on this stuff. Like you said, not hold your hand, not make it obvious, but get the point across. And it's like it's done seamlessly. It doesn't it's never preaching. This is not Green Book. Right. This is not preaching about racism. This is just showing you what's going on. And if you're watching the movie carefully, you pick it up, you know, and it's just like everything about this movie. is just absolutely masterful. Like I can't get over it. Like it's a movie that. So every once in a while, Andrew, I will watch a movie, usually at the behest of you or my other (laughs) podcast host, Mike, um, and then I'll get really mad because it's good. Not because I'm like, oh, I didn't want Andrew to be happy. Well, that's part of it. But (laughs) the real part of it is like, I could have been watching this for years. Yeah. Like, I could have seen this five or six times by now. I wish I had seen The Grand Illusion earlier because, like, this this is definitely a movie that I'm going to be going back to repeatedly like i'm now mad it's not on the criterion collection in blu-ray because i want to own it i want i want to be able to pop it in and have all the all the extras every bit i just want to get every bit of information i can and you want to talk about like well-known uh figures in film loving this movie we already talked about scorsese and ebert um and you know the director of citizen kane himself said this is one of two movies I would take with me on the arc. Like if I had to go where I could never watch another movie, this is one of two. He didn't say what the second one is, which probably tells you it's one of his movies. I'm <laughs> guessing. I mean, Orson Welles, he's that guy. So I don't know if it's like Touch of Evil or Citizen K or what, but I guarantee you it's one of his. But the other one is The Grand Illusion. What a powerful statement. 
Like the, basically, what movie would you take with you? And I think that's an interesting question in general. What movie would you take with you that like this is film? This is cinema. It has everything I need to feed to scratch that itch for film. And The Grand Illusion, I could definitely see that going on a short list of movies like this. And I I, you know, always have one of those kind of running lists of like greatest greatest or favorite films of all time, and I'm struggling like this has to be this has got to be top 10, top 20 oh, yeah. ever. You know, yeah. and it's it's one of those, and I definitely want to watch it a couple more times before I definitely say that. But like, I can't imagine that this doesn't go on this list. Like this, this is one of those movies, and it's a shitty thing to say, but it's me, so I'm going to say it. Like, <laughs> if you don't like this movie, I'm going to have a difficult time respecting your opinion on film. Like, yes. this is it's that good. Like, you can say like, oh, I didn't love it. It's not for me. But if you say like this is a badly made film, then you don't know what you're talking about. And you should try again. You should try movie. Start over, wipe your brain, and try movies again because you missed a day in school. Like this is where it's at. Like that. Wow. Like I just kept watching this and like could not believe it kept getting better. Like I was worried because like the first twenty minutes are so good, and you're like, okay, when's it gonna fall off a cliff? Like you cannot keep up this pace. But it just gets better. Like it just all every minute of this movie has this momentum. You know, and it's not afraid to make dangerous choices, whether you're talking about the class structure stuff, the anti-Semitism stuff, the racism stuff, or in the middle of the movie, taking your main plot and going, ah, that bullshit doesn't matter. Uh, We're going to go to like five more camps and then we're going to start all this over. Uh, Sorry. You know, and I'm like, what? You're just going to you're going to take the thing that is moving your movie forward and just chuck it out the window. Yeah, like that takes some serious guts and some serious skill to make it work. But there's not a moment in the movie that doesn't work. It works all the way through. But what I love about that is it accentuates and highlights the futility of of everything. You know, we we become so invested in the tunnel that they're building on and they're trying to dig to get out of there. And these beautiful moments of them uh, talking out in the yard and getting rid of the dirt and all this kind of stuff. And we're so... I, I guess because of the films that have come since then, uh, you know, the the escape films in a lot of ways, um, we expect to see that escape occur because they're putting so much effort into it. So, And, and why would he not show us this if they're not going to get out? Like we're so attuned to a positive ending. We're so attuned to being, um, you know, shown celebration uh, a victory Mm -hmm. and we want these people to have a victory because we care about them and you know one of the characters almost loses his life uh digging the tunnel and then it just disappears and we sit there for a moment and just think that was all for nothing and i think that what i love about grand illusion is i've watched this three times and i've seen it at different points in my life Uh, i saw it in the the early 2000s i saw it again in the um mid 2010s and i I, i've watched it now in 2021 and i'm at three different stages in my life in that particular film and each time i you know my perspective on it changes it's still a masterpiece each time i watch it but one of the enduring things that i come away from this film feeling is that learning how to understand and accept loss and um, the failure to achieve something that we're trying to do, that we put so much effort into. And sometimes digging a a tunnel to escape just doesn't happen and we don't escape. And I know that, you know, my life is completely different to these French soldiers and these, you know, the different soldiers that are, are trapped in this particular prison, their life is much more devastating than mine is. But on the same hand, you know, we tell these stories to be able to take away those kinds of things, to take away the familiar and to take away the understanding and to see ourselves in these particular situations and go, well, shit, I look at my own life and I can tell you about 10 different times where I've had similar kinds of situations where I've been digging my own tunnel and it's collapsed and or it's I've been removed from the situation and haven't been able to escape. And, you know, it, it's, it makes me think of a film that comes up in the future, um, Shawshank Redemption, which is so earnestly optimistic and so earnestly hopeful in the escape of Dufresne in that particular film. And that film, for all the messages in it, 
feels dishonest with that ending. And yet, Grand Illusion presents the reality of that situation. It presents what would actually happen and how the the um, the guards and the other soldiers would treat these prisoners. And while there is civility, there is also a massive disrespect um, and manipulation. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what I really like about those sequences with the digging is it had to be tempting, given that, you know, the director and the writer, they know where this is going. They know that the digging itself doesn't matter. Like, it's going to be taken away from them. And yet, there's no shortcuts. There's no there's no clue. There's no hint that this is stupid or pointless. They, I mean, they go through the whole thing of, like, you know, bringing out, bringing dirt in their pockets and dumping it in the garden. Like, it, so it feels, it feels like it has momentum. It feels like it matters. It feels like we need to pay attention to how they're doing this so they can stay safe. And none of that shit matters. None of it. it it's all going to go away because it's going to be taken away by forces beyond their control. And it's a, just another example of just how perfect it is. And I also love, you mentioned, you know, someone almost loses their life. Um, someone of a lower class almost loses their life because the upper class officers aren't paying attention because they're distracted by something else, which I think is pointed. I don't think that's an accident. And but I also love that, you know, in situations like this, you have to have a certain amount of gallows humor. It's got a you know, there has to be a release. So, I I mean, it's a legitimately laugh out loud moment where the man is revived by alcohol and he just just (laughs) grabs the grabs the bottle of brandy or whatever it was and just starts downing it and he's like oh get away i'll be fine i just need this and kind of cuddles up with his bottle of alcohol because you need your comfort after something terrible happens and it's just like just another absolutely beautiful moment that's also paired with true terror when you know you have the the scenes outside where you don't see it but a man has tried to escape got to the tree line and was shot dead so it reminds you another illusion in this movie that illusion of safety right as long as you don't try to escape you're going to be fine because you're an officer we'll give you your food you get all this but as soon as you step out of line you will be shot this is still a war this is still a prisoner camp so remember that and i love that the movie constantly reminds you of that because everything is so posh and the way they speak to each other is so nice and classy it's easy to lose track of the situation you're actually in so, like, there's about two or three moments in the film where Renoir is like, hey, guys, remember, this is this is life or death. So don't forget that moment. You know, like, you know, you have the big party, you have the big, you know, drag scene, you have all that. But then it leads to, you know, them being prisoned even more. Right. And being punished for this and, you know, being, you know, alone in a cell. Like, so remember, have your fun, but you're going to get it in the end. And and especially, I think that one of the, the the perfect marriage moments in that particular film, where it marries the the fun and the the threat and the violence, is the escape scene where you know the one of the guys that we've been following for so long, and and that's one of the other things that this film does is it will cement characters in the plot and then it just leaves them, and we don't know what happens to them yeah. for a lot of them, but one of our co leads effectively. Um, sacrifices himself in one of the most charming and and I, I i i struggle to use the word delightful but it is kind of delightful where he he leads these other soldiers on a pied piper chase through a prison 
so his two friends can get out. And it's sweet, it's charming, it's also downright heartbreaking because he knows that he's not going to survive this. Oh, yeah. Um, and he knows that the threat of being shot by a man that he does respect because they are, are similar officers um, is, you know, which is played by Eric von Schoheim, and he is so powerful. That image of him with the eyes and, and his his explanation of how he is physically been injured by war is just powerful too um but the two of them have such respect for one another and yet they both know that if they were put into this situation that they would do exactly the same thing as what they've already done yeah and i find that really really powerful but i want to touch on one of the final moments in this particular film because it talks about these these the two escapees here uh, where they find solitude and safety in the farm of a widowed German woman, Elsa, played by Dieter Palo, and they find domesticity and they find comfort and safety. And I wonder for you, do you feel that this film would have had as much an impact if we didn't have that reminder of what these people are fighting for? Because uh, the moment that I think that this particular film cements itself as a masterpiece is when she talks and cries about the joy of hearing footsteps in the house mm-hmm. and the absence of a partner or another person in the home and the loneliness that brings. And right there in that moment, we think of all the men and all the partners who have died in war yeah. and the, the people that have been left behind. And for me, this film would still be great, but it may not be the masterpiece that it is if we didn't have that reminder of why... Right. This war is taking place. So what you're asking is, would this perfect movie be as great <laughs> without the best scene in the movie? No, yeah. absolutely not. It would still be great. It would probably still be a five-star movie. It's fantastic. And it's kind of weird how great it is, considering it kind of breaks one of the cardinal rules of filmmaking, which is the show don't tell, especially when you're talking about war. Like you mentioned, there's no sequences where even the, you know, all the injuries, like he's showing off, like all the terrible things that you don't see any of that. He just tells you like, oh, yeah, this scar is from this, this, this injury is from this, blah, blah, blah. He just goes through it and tells you. And yet it's affecting. But yes, Andrew, it pains me to say this, but you are absolutely right. Um, that that scene cements the previous two hours. The previous two hours are interesting and wonderful and phenomenal, but it is siloed. It is just about men at war, whether they're high class, whether they are of a different race or a different religion. It's still They still have this thing in common, right? They have at least one thing in common. They're all soldiers in a war. And it's easy to forget in a movie about war to forget about the homestead. To forget about the reason that governments pull us into fighting, right? Protect the homeland. And what that means is protect your wife, protect your children, protect your community. And that moment where she, even just simply saying how much you miss the sound the sound of humanity, the sound of life, the sounds of joy and sadness and anything, that's why you fight. That's why you make sacrifices. That's why thousands upon thousands of men and women have died in, some would say, pointless wars because of life. That's why. And that scene really solidifies that and hits. And I'm watching this movie already very moved by it. And then that scene hit and I'm like, okay, Remois, you you can ease up. I don't need this in my life. I don't need you to remind me, especially during a goddamn pandemic, of the sounds of footsteps in my house, which are not there because no one can come over. Like our lives are completely on pause, especially in America right now, if we're doing it right. Um, so that was like it would be moving anyway. But given the times we're living in, uh, extremely moving and extremely just this palpable moment of like bittersweet pain, like just wow. And it's, it's one of the, it's one of the few times in a war movie, one that they even go into that, that they even talk about home. Right. Cause usually you don't want to talk about home because like we're here, we're in this moment, it's bloody, it's violent, it's hyper and all that stuff. But they actually talk about it. But this is the first time I think in my life in a war picture, I have felt that I have felt that pain, that loss from something that is not connected to me at all, 
these aren't even American soldiers. Like, these are French and German soldiers. And I'm like, ow, fuck. Like, that is a truly powerful moment. And again, this is why I say this is one of those movies that I watch and like, yes, this is why film is art. This is why I watch so many movies. Because how many times are you going to get that moment just sitting in a dark room? Not listening to anyone that you know, but total strangers. A made-up story. And yet, I watched this and it felt completely real. Like, that moment just hit like a hammer to the heart. It's beautiful and stunning and a little bit mean to your audience uh, by Renoir, but (laughs) so, so good. So, yes, that is the scene that solidifies it. That's the scene that makes it a masterpiece. I think if you take away that scene, you know, not to discount it, but it's just a very good movie. It's just a great movie. But it moves from a great movie to a legitimate masterpiece of film. I agree. I agree. And one of the things which I like about it is that it, it, it gives context to the scenes that we see earlier where the soldiers effectively get these quite impressive care packages from home uh, delivered to them in the camp. And it seems absurd nowadays to see that, given that we effectively, you know, we treat everybody from... Um, you know, enemy soldiers to refugees as prisoners, as as villains, as enemies, and we lock them up in camps and deny them um, basic civil rights. And yet we see these people who are receiving ham and, um, you know, all manner of food and, and these delicacies from their homeland with letters and things like that. And yet there is this powerful moment where... You know, and, and it's a slightly amusing scene because of the anticipation that everybody has for how good the food might be in this box, this massive box that has arrived. And everybody gets around and and they all sit there in, in anticipation as the nails are pulled out. And then finally the lid is pulled and there's straw and they're like, oh gosh, I can't wait to eat this. And they pull the straw away and it's books. And the anger and the fury that is there, that it's books. And then, you know, the German soldiers come along and burn it all. And it's it's devastating because while people can have the reminders of home, uh, the food, the celebration of um, the delicacies that come from their homeland, having the intellect and the intelligence and the education and the, the stories taken away from them is something completely different altogether and it's why the act of book burning is so so terrifying and so sad and so you know obviously we look at a film like Grand Illusion and it almost didn't exist nowadays because it was stolen because it was lost and we we are grateful that somebody on the opposing line went no no this one actually kind of matters in a way um and yeah, it, it 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 says so much because these films mean everything. You know, these stories mean everything. And if we destroy them, if we get rid of them, then what does it say about us as people? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think you said it perfectly. And it, it just like the more we talk about it, the angrier I get. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that didn't win. Like, you know, you want to talk about a Oscar award winner that matters, that should be preserved. And, you know, it's very interesting that this almost, you know, we've talked about movies on this podcast that like we can't watch, like we can't find because the prints are gone. They don't exist. Um, And honestly, I mean, this sounds dramatic, but I truly believe this, that the, the world is a better place because this was saved. Like it is just a tremendous film and it matters and speaks to so many things that never get talked about um even in film now like this you know if you want to talk about um best anti-war films or even best war films if grand illusion isn't on your list you're doing it wrong like this is (laughs) phenomenal and i just i'm so glad like i'm so glad that you wanted to do this because you know you talked about your experience with criterion and this being the reason that you had seen it and like without this podcast i mean i probably would have watched it eventually i watched so many goddamn movies but who knows how many more years it would have been i might have been 60 by the time i watched grand illusion you know because there's just so many options if you're just talking about great french films of the 30s and 40s there are a lot of choices that you can go to and this, and even uh, if you're just talking about great genre war films, it's like right, you know, right. exactly. 
Far out. <laughs> this is, I mean, just phenomenal. And I've used that word a lot. And I apologize for that. But it's just so, so good. And it's rare that you get to watch a movie this fantastic, completely blind. I didn't even know this was a, a war movie. I didn't know anything about it. I was like, oh, Grand Illusion? Oh, but it's French? Okay. That's all I knew going in. And, like, what, what a goddamn treat this was. Every once in a while, you just get... You get to see a movie completely blind and it just just knocks you out with how good it is. And that, you know, and and it matters. The Grand Illusion matters. uh, And I'm not joking right now. I literally blanked on the name of the movie that won the Oscar that year. Uh, uh, (laughs) And we've literally just discussed it. Yeah, we've literally just just recorded these back to back. We just talked about it. So I like it matters so much more than you can't take it with you. And I love Frank Capra. But this I mean, there's no comparison. You know, I mean, mean, you can only compare this movie to other masterpieces, like to put it in a fight against other like pretty good movies that got nominated for Best Picture is laughable. Like, it's like, why are we why are we even bothering? Like, this is not a competition. This is the best. I want to bring up like as we wrap up this discussion. And again, I think that no matter what tendril that we pull on this particular film, there is hours of discussion to be had. And it is, I can guarantee you, like I sent you a few links about the, the films that, you know, about this particular film and the reading and the writing on this particular film is so powerful. And, and while it's, you know, it's hard to say it's equal to the film itself, the readings that I get from this particular film inform me as a person and inform me as somebody who watches films and writes about films and enjoys films and loves films. And, I love this kind of film because I feel richer for being a viewer of it, for having experienced it, but I feel richer for having experienced the writing of people having written about it. So, you know, I'm grateful that this particular film exists, but it it helps watching these particular films because I know that the, I know like when I chose the name for this particular podcast, awards don't matter. I did it as kind of like a, a dig at the way that Oscar films are talked about in the sense that people are like Oscars don't matter. And it's like, yeah, okay, they kind of don't, but they kind of do. And this kind of film makes me recontextualize what it means for a best picture winner and what it means for the awards themselves. Because if we, if we broaden our scope of, of the films that are covered, not just in the Oscars, but let's say Khan, for example, um, you know, the, the lineup of films that win there are stunning. And, you know, they are more global and more international than the Oscars are. The Oscars are predominantly an American-focused uh, award ceremony, and that's fine. Just as Cannes is a predominantly an international one, or the Berlin Film Festival is a, a predominantly international one. Or the actors are sure, just Australian. The actors, <laughs> yeah, the actors. <laughs> Where we award films like The Great Gatsby, one of the, uh, you know, enduring Australian classics. Oh, it, um, come on. There are I, many great films that have won actors. You didn't have to bring up that garbage. Come on. Well, yeah. <laughs> like your but favorite it movie, me... Baby Teeth, for instance. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Far out, Baby Teeth. <laughs> Forget that film exists. Um, but <laughs> why do you do this to me, Dave? Um, but... But it makes me, a film like Grand Illusion makes me recontextualize what an award is and what it means because this film does transcend um, awards. But on the same hand, as we've touched on in this particular episode, as you've mentioned, you know, people seek out Best Picture winners. People seek out Best Nominees and stuff like that. And it makes it even more important. Like, again, I wouldn't have likely have gotten to this film until I was 60 even, uh, you know, if it weren't for Criterion. And there is a likelihood that a lot of people might not have gotten to this film if it weren't for it being nominated for Best Picture. And I can only imagine the audience and the impact, the social impact. And I know it sounds trite to say that a film can have such a grand influence um, on people's lives, but this is a film that has influenced my perspective on life uh, in a in a way that you know I, I was changed after the first time I watched it. And it's one of those kinds of rare films. And I can only imagine the impact that this particular film would have had if it had a broader reach by having one best picture. And this is not to say that it doesn't have a broad reach. It does, but it tends to be with people like you and I who are, you know, like it or not, we are film snobs in a way. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I freely you know. admit that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Complete film snob. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. This would be a better world if this uh, was on all those lists of Best Picture winners that more people would see. But I don't know. Hopefully um, people who are on that journey right now and listening to this podcast will give Grand Illusion a shot because it is, you know, I, I'm trying to think if, like, if this had won Best Picture on our, like, little ranking list of best, this has got to be number one, right? This is better... To me, this to me, this is better than any movie so far that has won Best Picture. And I, I mean, Sunrise is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, it's in my top twenty, and right next to it <laughs> in my top twenty is Grand Illusion. So for me, like, yeah. if this had won, it, it would be right at the top. It's it's inescapable. Um, you know, there there is just rare films like this that exist, and. <sighs> Again, I, I can only think of if this had won the amount of films that aren't in the English language that might have been considered. It shouldn't take until 1969 for uh, Z to be nominated. Right. The 42nd Academy Awards for another film not in the English language to be <laughs> Every nominated. Every 30 years take... we get one. That's, come on, guys. Yeah. Ugh. And it shouldn't have taken until 2019 or 2020, rather, that you know a film in Korean wins best picture you know i know that we talk about and it'll be a long time before we can even approach this on this particular podcast but i know we talk about the representation of women directors and women filmmakers um you know we're not talking until the 70s that even a woman was nominated for best director and then it's not until the 2010s that you know they win a best picture and a best director oscar you know there is so much the Academy needs to do to fix their image. And, you know, repairing it nowadays is fine and all this kind of stuff, but they've been around for almost 100 years. It's it's a shame and it's a crime that they didn't celebrate more films uh, from a broader perspective. But given the last film that we talked about, which was a nice film, you know, and it has its own cultural uh, problems, um, it's not surprising. No, no, <laughs> you know, absolutely. not surprising at all. Yeah. So Andrew, do you have? What are we? Yeah. What are we going to talk about next, Andrew? What's uh? Oh, what are we going to talk about the next? next movie? We're going to talk about uh, a little film called Gone with the Wind. Yeah, um, I can't wait. I'm very excited for this, not only because you haven't seen it before, and I, I kind of wish I could be in Perth watching you watch this. Movie. I just <laughs> want to see it, and also because I don't think I've watched this movie since I was like 13 years old. So. I mean, I've owned copies of it, and it's just, it's, you know, it's fucking 19 hours long. It's not a movie you just pop on. Um, so <laughs> I probably haven't watched this in, like, almost 30 years. So I have no idea if I'm going to like it now. So it'll be it'll be interesting to talk about, I think. Uh, and totally... I, I uh, should clarify. It'll be, um, it'll be uh, no, uh, no racial issues in this movie at all. It'll be really chill. It'll be great. No problems at all. I, I have seen half of it. <laughs> I mean, that's like a full movie, half of this movie. That's like two hours. But but yes, we're going to be tackling Gone with the Wind. And, and um, you know, we look at, like, this year, there were a lot of great Best Picture nominees. But next year, far out. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Whew, it's it's stacked. The nominees it's there, stacked. It is a stacked year. It's when they start giving some quality. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to be discussing Gone with the Wind, um, which is four hours long. And uh, no issues with that at all. Um and while I've, I, I, look, I've already said that I would like to discuss Wizard of Oz uh, as, a, as a spare thing. But again, I think that one of the things which is, you know, we've already talked a long time on this particular episode, and I'm going to wrap up soon, I know. But one of the things which has made me realize, like, and I wanted to ask you about this on air, I guess, uh, even though it's a recording that goes up later on. Um, for you, as we discuss these extra films, these, these nominee films, the selection process is likely being me going, Dave, you're going to watch this now. And <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But I'm curious for you, if you were the deciding force and you can be the deciding force, of course, um, deciding if we discuss a best picture nominee alongside the best picture winner, how, how would you decide what we would discuss? Because obviously a film like Wizard of Oz, we know that that matters. We know that's important. And, doing an episode on it is kind of redundant in a way. Um, and it's mostly just because I love the film and I want to talk about it and I've never actually talked about it on a podcast before, so it's purely selfish reasons. But I'm curious for you how you would decide what gets discussed. Mm. 
I mean, a lot of it, which I should have asked when we started doing this fucking podcast. <laughs> what a dick. Um, so I think I, I think we look at it in pretty similar ways um, in this idea of like, you know, maybe not what should have won, but like movies that have lasting power in some way. And I think actually the next Oscar is you have a couple choices, at least in my mind. Uh, and I, I would make the decision between them by saying, okay, which movies have I not podcasted on? So I'm not repeating myself or, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately the two movies I would choose, I have already done podcasts on both of them. Uh, somehow, because for me, it would be between the wizard of Oz and Stagecoach, uh, because I think Stagecoach has a really interesting, uh, take on the Western and uh, is indicative of action movies in the future. I think it's a very interesting movie in that way. Uh, and actually, uh, I think it's uh, John Ford's uh, best Western. Uh, I know that is a, uh, I guess, not a common uh, opinion uh, because The Searchers exists, but I think it's a much better movie than The Searchers and way less racist. Um well, I'm going to out myself here because I'm quite looking forward to watching Stagecoach because, uh, once again, I've, I've, I've still not seen a John Ford oh, film. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I feel redundant. Yeah. Stagecoach, um, and honestly, if someone said, like, what should I start with, with John Ford, that's what I would pick. I, I would go with Stagecoach. Like, I think it's really accessible. It's a really interesting movie. It is, like, weirdly modern and progressive, even though it's made by John Ford and has John Wayne in it. It's a very strange movie in that way, but it's it's great. I mean, it's, it's probably my favorite John Ford movie. I think it's wonderful. But The Wizard of Oz, I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, so I think, you know, keeping in mind movies that have lasting power and movies that have like many different readings on them, I think are really interesting. Like I did an episode on the wizard of Oz on queer and now. So of course it was like, you know, a lot about friends of Dorothy and like the, the impact on the queer community of this movie and how it's been lasting. But I think you can also talk about it as a fairy tale. You can talk about it in terms of how actresses during this time were treated. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go with the wizard of oz so i think you know i i hate telling you you've done the right thing you know this but i think the wizard of oz is a really good choice um so but keep stroking that ego dave right, i like it right. i gotta keep <laughs> you coming back i gotta i gotta get to like you know at least get to like the 60s and 70s i gotta get to my wheelhouse of uh of, of film so we gotta we gotta keep pushing along but yeah i mean i will tell you that like if you if you say like hey i think we should watch this i'll be and if i think it's stupid i will tell you i'll be like no i don't think we should talk about it we should talk about this instead but so far you haven't made any major mistakes uh which is like a record for you you've gone like weeks weeks now without making a major mistake so well done it's bound to happen in the future uh just stay tuned um so yeah. <laughs> and if people want to uh track us down and all this kind of stuff um the episodes are hosted at the curb.com.au uh you can follow us on twitter awards don't pod and uh on facebook awards don't matter and dave where can they find you talking about films like the wizard of oz on other shows what, what where can they stalk where you can't you find me online good lord uh, uh, Twitter is obviously the best place, also like the worst place to exist, but the best place to find me. Um, you can follow me at Darn That Dave. And if you would like to listen to what I was just talking about as far as our episode of Wizard of Oz and test me in terms of like, can I talk about something new uh, with the same movie? Uh, you can uh, look up Queer and Now. It's a Talk Film Society podcast I do with my friend Manish, where we look at one movie per year, um, a queer movie of that year. And of course, Wizard of Oz was an obvious choice. Uh, for whatever year that was, 1939, I guess. Um, so you can find that at Queer and Now Pod. Uh, obviously, just type in Queer Now on you know iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Pretty easy to find, and I think it's one of our. It's as we're recording right now. I think it is just going to come out. Uh, come out's an interesting turn of phrase for that, but it's just going to release uh, in the next couple days. So that should be the most recent episode, even by the time this comes out. So check that out. Yeah, happy to give you uh, way more podcasting than you could ever listen to. So enjoy, I guess. <laughs> enjoy Dave's dulcet Yeah, tones. there it Fantastic. is. Fantastic. Yeah. May, may, he, may you listen to him as you fall yes, asleep. Yes, I love it. <laughs> I like that idea. Marcellus, please. Uh, I'm a Pontanopatry.